Welcome to Choose Wisely. This is the podcast where we deconstruct food and sustainability topics with nuance and primary sources. Here, we believe there are a lot of right ways to eat well, and that we can't change a food system we don't truly understand. I'm your host, Caroline Nelson, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Kaben Kramer of Tenderly Rooted Sprouted Walnuts. So my favorite thing in the world is when guests kind of pause during the interview and go, can I share a hot take? Or can I be really honest? Or they'll say, can I go on a rant for a minute? And I'm like, yes, go. Because I know like now we're really getting to the good stuff and whatever's about to come next is going to crack my brain open and widen my perspective. And that was absolutely my experience with this interview. First of all, you're just going to learn a lot about farming nuts, and it's a really fascinating, cool process. But really, the story of the Kramers and Tenderly Rooted is about resilience, courage, intergenerational farming. It's the story of farming today when we're competing with so many market forces that are against us, And it's about still farming gently, um, staying in our ethics. We even get into some fun territory, um, some hot takes about the idea that you can own natural resources like water. You are going to love this episode, and I highly recommend you check out Cabin and his wife Jen's website, tenderlyrooted.com. Snag yourself some of these famous sprouted walnuts, which are unlike any walnut you've ever had in your life. I also wanted to thank Murray and JM, who are our latest patrons to join us over on the Choose Wisely Patreon. Thank you so much for supporting us and the work that we're doing here. All right, let's go. Time for our interview with Caben Kramer. Today's episode is brought to you by G5 Insurance. And if you're a rancher, farmer, or a small business owner, I want you to listen up because G5 Agency insures everything that we do at Little Creek. These are our insurance agents, and they've been with us since the very beginning. I deal with a lot of different businesses through our work, and I am constantly blown away by how different it is working with G5. I feel like they actually know us. They're invested in us. They care about us. It feels like a very old-fashioned, personalized experience. Our agent will call me to check in. They will even send me a DM on Instagram. If I have any questions, I just know "Mm, I'm going to run this by Eric or I'm going to shoot Lorraine an email. And they have really stayed with us as we've grown and really facilitated the growth of our business. Our insurance needs are complex. We're on a farm. We have heavy equipment. We work with livestock. We ship perishable food products. We run tourism events on different ranches with large animals and we have business vehicles. Like if you know anything about insurance, you know what a feat it is that we love our agents. G5 wasn't daunted by any of our needs. I am ride or die at this point and I highly recommend them to anyone out there in need of business insurance. G5 can write in 48 states and has years of experience working with farms, ranches, and small businesses. You can find them at g5agency.com. Hey, Ben, I am so excited to have you here with us on Choose Wisely. So I have been a big fan of Tenderly Rooted, I would say 
probably a year and a half now. I've been watching you since Sharon says so, Sharon McMahon, our favorite, originally shared about you guys. Was that like two years ago or a year and a half? That was April of 21. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was wow. a long time ago. And so is there, in case anybody is not familiar with at Sharon says so on Instagram, I hope they make themselves familiar. Yes. Um, but she was just on there raving about this company called Tenderly Rooted and their sprouted walnuts and what's a sprouted walnut. And then I listened to your podcast with her and yeah, I'm just hooked. So thank you so much for being here. Um, you and your wife, Jen, are really fun to follow. You are so transparent and you guys live in the nuanced world <laughs> that I yeah. try to live in all the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is, it's, it's such a joy to be here. First of all, because I, I listen to your podcast and I think it's absolutely the content that needs to be listened to by millions of people, quite frankly, because it addresses so many issues that, you know, matter to us so much. Um, but then it's fun because likewise, we've been following your journey from afar. And for us, we were introduced to you through the five Marys program. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, probably about the same time, sometime in 2021, we began. So we were like, wow, what she's doing is amazing. And she's doing all these cool things. And she's, wow, she's just doing all this awesome stuff. So it's really fun to finally connect. So thanks. It is so fun. Would you, I started to introduce you a little bit, but can you flesh out for me your farm and your family and what is Tenderly Rooted? Absolutely. We are truly small farmers. We're only on 60 acres here and we lease it all from my parents. So my parents live on the property in the house that my dad built when my older sister was born, the house I grew up in. About 200 yards away is our house, which is the original house on the property that my great-grandfather moved from town out to the farm when he bought it in 1947. Had no plumbing, no electricity back then. You know, so it's, it's gone through plenty of remodels. And so anyway, this is, so we live on the property here, the 60 acres, and that's it. That's all it is, which on the scale of agriculture in America is truly a small farm in so many ways. Um, so I spent my childhood here and then I spent my high school years actually in Kenya, East Africa. I went to high school there, graduated there. I thought I was never coming back to America. I didn't think I was ever coming back to California. And I certainly above all else was not going to come back to the farm. <laughs> so I spent 18 years doing a bunch of fun things all over the world, which is wonderful. Um, married my awesome wife, Jen, who of course, you know, from Instagram, and then in 2018, we decided to move our family back to the farm. And really, we did it in order to provide a retirement for my parents, right? They had spent 40 plus years farming diligently, faithfully. We wanted to help them transition out of that, enjoy their lives. So we're going to take over the farm. Uh, the idea was the farm would support our family and my parents and pay for its own expenses. After our first year of farming, we realized it couldn't do all three of those things. So we said, okay, we need to get our own income somewhere else. So that way the farm can pay for my parents and can pay its own bills. Year two and year three of farming really taxed that idea. And of course, this year, which we'll probably get to, the farm can neither pay my parents nor pay its own mm -hmm. bills. Um, but after that first year of farming, we said, okay, we need our own income from somewhere else. And that's really where Tenderly Rooted came from. Um, because we were presented with this challenge of saying, okay, here we, we are geographically located here. We can't move off the farm. We need to stay here in order to farm. And we need a source of income that allows farming to still stay the center. So I can't just necessarily go get a job, you know, in Silicon Valley or somewhere else. 
Well, so what are we going to do? How are we going to invent ourselves to create a pathway uh, for this to happen? And the end result is sprouted moments. So what you've done is started a direct-to-consumer arm of the walnut business, correct? Correct. You guys are expanding so much right now. We'll get back to all this, but I just I want to paint a picture for people so they really understand there's really two distinct arms of you know ways you can farm. You can be, be selling into a commodity market, which is what the farm uh, traditionally did, and then you can kind of blaze your own trail and try to go direct to consumer. Um, you will maybe long-term, hopefully get better revenue, keep more of the profits that the middleman usually bite off, but the overhead investment, it's, it's not as, uh, it's not like, we'll just, we'll just get rich next year. Cause we're going to start <laughs> selling, you know, selling walnuts directly to the people. So it's, it's quite an undertaking. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and I should say we still do sell into the Kabani market. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though we're a small farm, more walnuts are produced on this farm than we can sell directly ourselves. Of course, we'd mm-hmm. love to get to a place where we can change that. And someone just earlier today on Instagram on our private farm club just asked me, why can't we just exit the commodity market entirely? And the challenge with starting your own thing and growing your own market is that you actually have to build the market. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can't just say here's the volume of product we have and here's the price and it all just magically disappears. Real people need to be on the other end of that. And we can lose track of that sometimes in macroeconomic conversations. So that's really the challenge for Sprout Walnuts specifically because truly our ideal customer is someone who doesn't like walnuts Mm -hmm. but wants a healthy snack. Mm -hmm. Sprout Walnuts are perfect for that. And so for us, it's about market education. It's about market awareness. And it's about building that, that market really from the ground up, from scratch. Yeah, you guys are really building your own um, target audience. It's different from you know a whole bunch of us that sell beef. We might be convincing someone to buy direct from a farmer for the first time, or to buy our beef for the first time. But they're already beef eaters. You know, <laughs> I I really love your mission, um, and it seems like it's going really well. Again, we'll have to come back to you. You guys have been hitting the pavement really hard. Um, but okay, to back up a little bit. So you used to call yourselves regenerative walnut farmers. Now you're using different language, and I really appreciate the nuance. Would you tell us about your practices and what terms you prefer and why? Yeah, from my time in East Africa, I got my education in engineering, specifically water resources, with the intention of doing humanitarian water development work for the rest of my life. So I always had a bent towards justice and a larger awareness of the implications we're having on the places we occupy. And of course, that's grown significantly as a cis straight white man over the last decade. I've had lots and lots of moments to learn and discover new things, and I'm continuing to have those to this day. Um, so when we came into farming, I had been listening to podcasts and reading books and all these different things about this concept that was going to save the world called regenerative mm-hmm. farming. So I came in with a lot of enthusiasm, jumped in with both feet realized that there were some cultural practices that uh, were resistant to the idea of regenerative and realized that what my particular place needed was different than what the books formulated. That I actually had to distance myself from the body of knowledge that's called regenerative farming and embrace the specific knowledge of my soil, my trees, my microclimate ecosystem, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So when I began to make that shift, first of all, I, I really do, in my heart of hearts, consider myself a soil-first farmer. 
I really don't think we have any agriculture without soil, whether that's plants or animals. And I really think that as humanity, and it's a little bit of a doomsday perspective, but we're kind of six inches from extinction. So if, if we lose our little bit of topsoil that's holding this whole thing together, we won't have food next year, period. So caring for soil is central. And when I stepped back into farming, I realized that we had spent um, multiple generations without attending to that. And as a result, the soil suffered. I remember the soil when I was a kid in the 90s, seeing what the soil was like when I came back in 2018. Even in that short of a time frame, mm-hmm. I could feel the difference. Mm. So we began practices that focused on soil. So what does that mean practically? Practically, it means we apply compost tea. We have a bunch of earthworms going now, which is great, all over the orchard. We now mulch in everything. We don't push and burn brush anymore. We mulch it all into the soil as woody biomass. So mm-hmm. all these other little mm-hmm. chompers and microbes can break it down into stuff, which is great. We plant cover crops. And I get multiple cuttings off my cover crops. In fact, I was just talking to um, someone who works in the pest management research space uh, earlier this week, talking about how I kind of take a different approach to cover crops. I like to let my cover crop grow long and tall. And I do that for the transportation of beneficial insects between the the floor and the canopy of the trees. Something that you don't have to think about in rangeland necessarily. Oh, wow. But for us, our pests are up in the trees and the beneficials live down the grasses. And when we have a management practice that cuts all the grasses very, very low, which we have to for harvest because we harvest off the ground, but we don't have to the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. But as a practice, people tend to keep the orchards clean and by and large bare dirt in order to make harvest quote unquote easier. Well, as a result, you get a huge pest population up above with no way of really fighting it except for applying synthetics. So I let my cover crop grow into July, which in a California dry summer is a very, very long time to let a cover crop grow. Um, but I have seen beneficial predators um, increase in population year after year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's it's a, it's a paying attention to the trophic layers, of course, in the soil, um, the microbes and um, the microbiology in there going up into the little chompers and the minchers and the worms, the beneficial nematodes. And then you get into um, the larger life, right? You get into birds and you start getting into squirrels and voles and other things that people might find a nuisance that I see as part of the ecosystem and life cycle of the orchard and the trees. We could have squirrels eating their hearts out and they wouldn't even be able to eat 1% of our entire crop. Like just go for it guys. Mm -hmm. Because then what happens (laughs) is then owls and foxes and bobcats and other things come in, right? And we begin to scaffold that. And then of course, Mm -hmm. now we have this, and, and you think, okay, well, how does an owl help you have healthier soil? But it's about creating the whole ecosystem of life, right? It's about now how the owl is decomposting its food back into the soil and doing all these other things that really help the larger structure um, grow. So like I was out mowing this morning because we are in harvest prep now. We're probably four weeks from harvest. So we're going to do probably two different mows to make sure everything's nice and clean for the machines because apparently that's what we care about. And, you know, there was multiple families of deer out in the orchard with me, mm. just kind of walking around. Right. And I love that. And my, my mower's slow enough that I don't scare them. And so it's just fun to see that cycle of life happening on the farm. And I'm imagining you're saving on some input costs as well, in terms of just your time, the fuel to go across with the mower. There's kind of a debate in the rangeland world about hay production and how much of it we actually need. We end up spending 
all this time and money on equipment to bale this grass up just just right, haul it off the field and stack it, only to six months later unstack it one by one, bring it back to the same field, <laughs> open the bales and feed the cows. Now there's there's things about that that make a lot of sense. You lock in your nutrients, your protein, all these, you know, the grass when it's the healthiest and richest in the summer. Whereas if you left it standing, um, you're going to lose some of those nutrients, but there is, does it pencil out for you to actually put up hay or should you only put up some hay? It's just making me think of that. And I was going to ask you too, what have you seen in terms of maybe like soil temperature or water use? Do you feel that your cover crop helps your trees um, be less thirsty or do you think maybe they're more thirsty because something else to drink all that water? No, I, I really do think we've seen multiple benefits where if you pencil out the budget of our farm, it doesn't stack up against what the university recommends anymore. Like, cause we have diverged far enough that we are no longer <laughs> following the recommendations. Sorry, the recommendations for? For um, healthy production, right? So UC mm -hmm. Davis is the main agricultural center near us. Um, they've produced a lot of the cultivars that we use um, and they also produce recommendations for how many sprays to do, spray timing, how many times to irrigate, how long to irrigate, how many acre feet of water trees need, all that kind of stuff. So because we've introduced enough ecological systems on our farm, even though we are far from where I want to be, we have introduced enough for me to realize that the recommendations laid out by the university don't always make sense on our farm. And that starts with synthetics. So, for example, last summer, we, we have a private road that divides my house um, from my neighbor's farm. So 200 feet from my house is my neighbor's orchard. He sprayed five different synthetic sprays last season, and we sprayed two. He waters his orchard about every 10 days. We water our orchard about every three weeks. And, you know, because I can see his trees, I can see his harvest, right? We're right next door to each other. We're producing the same quality of crop from a grade sheet. And I also think I'm producing more nutrient dense food mm. because there's more in the soil for the trees to uptake nutrients. Now trees, trees are very, very cool things, very cool creatures that we don't often think about because us humans and, and our animals, we get our energy, our mass and our nutrients through the same port, right? It all goes in mm -hmm. our mouth. Right? Mm -hmm. Trees don't, right? They get it three different ways. They get their mass from the air. They get their energy from the sun and they get their nutrients from the soil. So if we look at like a FDA nutrition label on the back of a food product, sorry, it's USDA, it's not FDA, USDA standard nutrition label, that's standardized based on rigorous testing done in labs, but that tells you nothing about the specific food in that place. And what I can tell you at least about seeds and vegetables is if it's supposed to have a nutrient in it, but that nutrient is not in the soil, the nutrient doesn't magically appear in the food. <laughs> like, right, it has course, to be there right. in the soil. Right. Like the trees cannot absorb magnesium from the atmosphere. They take it up through their root system. Mm -hmm. So we have to be putting things in place that put magnesium and copper and all these other minerals into the soil to be taken up into our food. Otherwise they just don't exist. Mm. And that's a part of the food cycle <laughs> that makes me care deeply, deeply, deeply about soil. And that I feel like is often missed, even in a lot of conversations about uh, regenerative practices. Mm -hmm. And even um, 
the soil test that we do that comes standard, we test through our um, extension, our local university agriculture extension agent. And when I go to the kind of more regenerative uh, minded organizations, they talk about how there's only a few labs at all that will do the, the type of micronutrient testing that we actually really want to see. Like, is our soil going to provide nutrient dense foods? My basic soil testing won't even tell me that. This is a, I want to do a whole podcast episode about this and really dig into nutrient density because I think the thesis out there is that our soils, as they become more depleted, our food has become more depleted and we need more of it to get the same levels. And it's amazing how many Americans are not at optimal um, nutritional levels, despite, you know, calorically having a sufficient intake. And I think this is a really interesting topic to untangle of. There could be health repercussions, but even just in my own life, noticing when I'm satisfied by food and when I'm not satisfied. Mm-hmm. The tomato is a great example, the grocery store tomato versus the heirloom, you know, local CSA tomato. They're like, they're like not even cousins anymore. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yep. And that big tomato from the local CSA, I mean, it's like a three meal ordeal. You're not having one sandwich out of that. Like you're full. Anyway, thank you so much for the great overview of what you guys are doing. And I love, I love how you're speaking about a more of a nuance and a tapering approach. And I really wish I would have talked to you about five years ago before I went cold Turkey off fertilizer and all of our pastures. (laughs) I I listened to your podcast about that and it was great. And I was chuckling. I was literally on the orchard working and I thought, Oh my gosh, I had the, I had the same idea. And I, I can't remember if I said this to you elsewhere, but I'll say it here. Like I, I, I wanted that. I wanted that. I wanted to go cold turkey, hardcore. Mm-hmm. And then someone, and I, I wish I could give them credit. I wish I could remember who it was, but I can't. But someone just pulled me aside and said, hey, your trees are like drug addicts. Yes. The synthetic fertilizers we put in the soil are like a direct injection into our veins, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and when we do that with drugs, we know what that does to the human body. It gives an immediate boost of energy, gives an immediate boost of clarity, gives an immediate boost of productivity, with long-term consequences. We feel that in the span of a human life, but in the span of trees, a tree life cycle is one full year, right? So it's not like, hey, tomorrow I have a hangover. Next mm-hmm. year, five years, 15 years from now, and in our cases, sometimes it takes 40 or 50 years for us to really see some of the long-term implications of this addiction we've been feeding. But what that means is to break the cycle of addiction takes about seven years. So we're, we're already down. We only apply about 25% of the synthetic fertilizer that we did five years ago, but we are still applying synthetic fertilizer mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we are still weaning the trees. And like you said in your podcast, I actually consider that a more regenerative approach yes. than cold turkey. And I'm there now, finally. Um, and luckily, I had such a tiny business. I mean, I think we butchered 15 or 20 sheep the year that I did that. I um, could afford to make that massive mistake. I remember just running out of grass in August and being like, this is a mystery. You know, (laughs) we are still recovering from that. And I'm this summer having a big debate. We applied a quarter ration, 25% of what you normally would of um, synthetic nitrogen on one half of that field that used to be a hay field that we're now going to be allowed to graze or, or put hay up on. And the way it responded, you could tell how starving it was. It hadn't had any in like four or five years and it's still a monoculture. So we haven't interceded in that pasture with the nitrogen fixing plants that we've been doing on the other side to try to naturally boost the soil nitrogen. 
and I'm going, okay, you know, depleted soil, like it's not helping anybody really. Yeah. And one more thing on that too. We also don't think about the form of nitrogen. Hmm. So synthetic nitrogen is really, it's, it's broken free. It's broken loose. It's really easy for the trees to uptake or in your case, the rangeland to uptake. So they don't have to do any work. They haven't had to exercise any muscles to get the results. Yes. But when we have nitrogen fixers, when we have microbiological systems, um, microbe universities, you know, churning away in the soil for us, producing nitrogen, that nitrogen is packaged mm. in other stuff. Now the tree has to do a little bit of work. Oftentimes that means creating a handshake between the microbes, right? The mycorrhizal fungi and mm-hmm. the root. They, they need to learn how to speak that language again. They need to learn how to exchange across that medium. And it takes them some time to do. And so even if we are technically, according to the research, producing the same amount of soil nitrogen through atmosphere capture, right? And plant capture, we're not transferring that necessarily to the growing crops we want at a one-to-one ratio. And now we might get there. The the research is still, you know, fact check me on this. We might get there. But as it stands right now, we need to overcompensate or expect lower yields. Mm -hmm. And really that second factor is where I think more truth lies, but it's a harder conversation. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, the the kind of metaphor of the drug addict, I've been thinking about that a lot. And the, the plant having, it's like they have no physical ability to, they can't work out anymore. They can't, you know, do all these things. And then you're asking them to recover. Yeah, we're four or five years after that initial cold turkey, and I'm still seeing the recovery. Um, and our, our when we soil test, it shows we're very low in nitrogen, but our plants and actually other pastures are doing really well. And so I was talking to our extension agent about this. I'm like, what the heck's going on? And she says, basically what you just said, stuff is cycling. Things are happening, but we're not storing. We're not like storing in the soil right now. So there's an exchange Mm. happening, which seems to be good, but maybe there's not that excess that, that Mm. you would get, you know, in a longer term timeframe. Well, and and I'm I'm glad you brought up the soil test again, because (laughs) what's so interesting, because you're absolutely right. I've been told the same thing that very few do the quote unquote, full, proper, extensive testing to really understand the whole cycle of the soil. And as I started looking at what we were getting back on our soil tests, it was the only categories they were testing for were categories that they had a chemical solution for. Right? Oh so my they, gosh. They, they were only, so even the forms of nitrogen, right? Cause you've got soluble and insoluble. Ni- you've got all these different forms that you can look at. You've got different ionizations. You've got all different things, right? They are specifically testing for the thing they can sell you a product to fix. Mm-hmm. They're not actually testing the soil. They're testing your marketability. Mm-hmm. Well, you broke my brain just now. And, you know, it's the university doing this testing. Like, I think I just want to point out, like, we're not saying, and they know it and it's on purpose, but it shows you like the system gets pipelined in such a way, you know, farmers have been asking specifically for that because they know this is something that I can, I can fix. Or or if you test for other things and a farmer comes back and says, well, what am I supposed to do about it? And -hmm. you have no solution for them. You just stop testing for it. Because we want to be, we want to be problem solvers, right? We want to give people mm-hmm. solutions. So that, that's a very natural human desire, but yeah. When I, so we're doing all this interseeding, no-till drill right into this existing grass stand, trying to, 
you know, break up this monoculture without killing it. Cause it's, you know, it's still good grass. And I'm calling around to buy the seed from different mills and nobody knows what to tell me to get. <laughs> nobody is doing this. And I'm not saying nobody is doing this. There are sure. tons of people doing this, but yes. we're so far and few scattered all around the country that our local hubs, they're like, you could try it. They're, they're as interested as I am is the result. They're like, let me know what happens. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what's going to thrive here. You know, and we, we did like an 11 or 12 species mix and, so I'm reporting back, okay, these seven worked really well. So if somebody else asks right. you, it's like having to rebuild systems that, you know, used to be here already and we've lost so much yeah. knowledge. Okay, I want to back up a little bit quickly. The idea of things like you not mowing as frequently, not watering as frequently, has that caused any friction at home? You know, the parents in the house next door going, uh, cave <laughs> Get on the mower. What are you doing? Absolutely, it has. Absolutely, <laughs> it has. Yes, yeah. It's it's the classic story, and it we can go fifty different ways with it. But you know, at, at its root, there is a little bit of if it is if it's always worked, why change it now? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of well, I'm I'm at the end of my life. I don't need to care about what happens in fifty years. And why why do you care about what happens in three hundred years? Right? Like mm-hmm. I I talk about I want this soil to be fertile for the next thousand years. Right. And that's just a weird concept most of the time. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's some different cultural priorities that are just attached to the industry part, like what we're talking about the soil testing and and part just kind of preferences and um, past painful experiences. You know, like my dad has experienced having massive pest infestations that have destroyed a significant portion of the crop. Mm -hmm. And so now he's very focused on making sure that we manage those particular pests in a very particular way. And even when other management solutions are provided, they're rejected because they're not the way that worked that one time when it was bad. There's certainly, again, like the university, no intentional malice, um, but there ends up being a lot of contention and conflict Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. like, what do we do? How do we move this thing forward? Yeah, you know, when we moved in 2018, um, the, the current practice on the farm is what we call scorched earth policy. Um, so it was wall-to-wall roundup under the canopy. No living plants was a good celebrated thing underneath. And so I immediately started planting cover crop. And, you know, we had, we had beans and we had peas and we had radish and we had triticale and we had all these things growing up in our cover crop. And my dad walked out and he said, well, I see all those weeds growing out there. What are you doing about that? And I said, I'm letting them grow. I planted them. But, you know, it's just one of those things of like, you're you're calling beans and peas weeds because they're growing (laughs) in the orchard instead of the garden. But like, they're they're not. Um, And then even a lot of the weeds we do have, have a lot of benefits for natural ecology as well. But that's another conversation too. (laughs) Well said. I I always heard the fastest way to get rid of your weeds is to stop thinking of them as weeds. Yes. I try to practice that. that when I'm when the thistle are out in full force. Um, so growing walnuts is an unbelievable time investment. I had no idea. It makes raising beef look fast. Could you give our listeners an overview of just what it takes from that original? Is it a, do you start with a, like a seedling or do you start with the actual walnut? Yeah, you know, we, we start with a one-year-old sapling, um, mm-hmm. which are cultivated in nurseries um, by the thousands and then transport. Walnuts, uh, I'll just digress a little bit on that for a moment. Walnuts are one of the many um, plants that we graft 
used to be all black walnut. Now there's some other kind of clonal varietals that we use, VX1 and other things that don't matter to the listeners. <laughs> but we, we use a root re- uh, disease-resistant rootstock, and then we graft in some kind of delicious edible yield. It's usually a Persian walnut, which is colloquially known as an English walnut. Um, it has everything that you know and expect about a walnut on it. So we have two varietals here on our farm. We have Chandler walnuts and we have Hartley's. And so then getting back to the life cycle and the time it takes to invest in a block, there we have a nine-acre block out behind my dad's house that were planted the year he was born. So they're 65 years old now. Wow. And we need to turn them over. But if we tore them out this year, it would be a decade from now. It would be 2033 before we harvested our first commercial crop. That's how long it takes to go from tearing out the big trees, retreating the soil, putting in new irrigation, planting new trees, caring for them. It takes about seven years from when you plant a tree to when you can harvest it. And it takes a few seasons to prep before that um, when you're replacing an existing orchard. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a full decade before, you know, a full decade of spending money before you start <laughs> making money off that land. And I think I heard you mention it in another interview Um this is one of the reasons there's not new people get, getting into the walnut industry going, I'm, let me start a walnut farm. And to, is it fair to say, I mean, there's nobody that really that can afford to go 10 years without a paycheck. Correct. And yeah, before you even buy the land. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's the thing too, right? It's the wider conversation than just walnuts. Like we are just physically boxed out of the industry, right? Mm-hmm. There's no way if my, if my wife and I have Jen and I, we're just going to move here on our own and start a 60 acre farm. Even if we are buying already producing farm mm-hmm. that we can make money on this October, it would still take about two and a half million dollars for us to get into that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's crazy. Right. It's un, untenable. What makes for a good harvest year? So I actually think this year is going to be a good harvest year. We had a pretty mild spring, but not too wet at the critical time, right? So when, when we have what we call bud break and we have leaf bud, it's critical time for blight, right? Which is a, a bacterial infection to get into the tree and it infests the point of the tree where the nut would try to grow and it corrupts that point. So if you have bad blight at the wrong times in the spring, it can really damage the crop. But we had a cool enough winter to let the tree stay, sleep a little bit longer, and then we had a really good butt break and bloom, no blight, which was amazing. We've had a very mild August, very mild September. It's already getting down into the 50s at night, which is great. We haven't had a day over 100 degrees since like August 20th or something, which is amazing. It's much cooler. So that's kind of letting us have a, a soft landing in the harvest, right? Everything's a little happier when it's this way. The walnuts are maturing really well all together all at once because they're just kind of in this cozy, great environment. And because of the cool spring, we had a really heavy set on the crop. So those two things together, I think this is going to be a really good harvest. I'm really glad to hear that. And I'm also, I know a little bit of what you guys have been dealing with on the, on the commodity side. So I'm like, well, a lot of good that's going to do you. So Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Yeah. Would, would you share with everyone... <laughs> What the hell has happened? Oh my gosh. Since you've come into walnut farming. Yeah, with the commodity market. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. You know, honestly, I, I believe that we are witnessing in real time an entire industry collapse. Wow. And I, I don't I'm I, I try to stay away from hyperbole. Mm-hmm. I try to stay away from, you know, being overly dramatic. But 
I think about like what we saw with agriculture in Silicon Valley, what we saw with agriculture in Orange County. We saw those industries collapse because of the influx of wealth. So people were being bought out because wealth was present. What we're seeing now with walnuts is industry collapse because of an absolute void, an absolute lack. It's really curious to think about why that's happening. But essentially, when we came into walnuts in 2018, the previous seven-year average was about $1.15 per pound back to the grower. So already you start right there. You're paying like $8 a pound at Target or Walmart or wherever. The grower's getting about $1.15 of that. So we set our budget at a dollar a pound. So below the average, we said, okay, if we can have a survive at a dollar a pound, we'll be good. We'll build our budget around it. Our first year, we got paid a dollar two, right? That's when we said, okay, the farm can't support us, my parents, and its own expenses. We need to go find our own income. Um, so that started tenderly rooted. But then the next year, it went down to 65 cents a pound. Our break even just for the farm paying its own expenses is about 80 cents a pound. So our second year of farming, it was 65 cents a pound. Our third year of farming, it came up to 78. So that was it was it was a break-even year. We broke even that year. And then the next year, um, which was last harvest, October of 22, um, we just got our last check. And when I totaled everything up, we got paid 22 cents a pound. So we have seen, and and they expect, by the way, for it to continue for a few more years this way. Now, I called our handlers, the people who buy our crop. And I kind of put their feet to the fire, you know, because they, they like to talk mm-hmm. numbers because they, they want you to heart. Like we literally got a letter in July from one of our handlers that said, we have no idea what this year's price is going to look like, but please harvest anyway. Basically saying, we need you to provide us the crop so we can keep going in business, but we don't know if we're going to be able to pay you at all. Right. So I, I called them and talked to two different guys and they're like, oh, you know, we, we think prices are going to be a lot stronger this year. We think they're going to come up to 50 cents a pound. I'm like, well, that's still losing money. That's still not profitable. And then I said, well, answer me two questions. In August of 22, they talked about us getting 60 to 70 cents a pound. We ended up getting 22 cents a pound. So my first question was, how confident are you that it's not going to repeat that again this year? No, no answer there. Second question, if you think it's going to be 50 cents a pound next year when you're paying growers, will you sign a contract with me right now for 40 cents a pound and you pocket anything over? Mm-hmm. No. In fact, what this one guy said is that, wow, if you could find a sucker to sign for 40 cents a pound right now, take it. And what that told me is they do not expect the price to come back up. No. They continue to, to talk well to the farmers who are just hoping to make a little bit of money saying, yeah, price are coming up. Harvest. Yeah, do it. Yeah, rah, 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 rah. And when push comes to shove, they, they're not going to back up their words with action, which tells me it's going to be another very, very low priced year. Jen just shared today that you guys got a check from one of your commodity buyers for $500, (laughs) which I'm guessing, if I had to guess, that wouldn't even be the operating expenses for one day on your farm. (laughs) Oh, good. No, I spent more than that in diesel just mowing. It's ridiculous. So again, our first year, when we, when we made a dollar to a pound, though, because that, that handler pays us in two checks, right? That first year, one check was like $50,000, right. right? That's like, when you think about 50% of your crop, like you're talking about running an entire business for an entire year. It sounds like big money, but it's, uh-huh. it's not that big of money. So 50 grand in a check was like, okay, now like we're, we're in business here. We were expecting a check for about five or $6,000, this year because we knew the prices were so in the tank and we were based on what we were getting paid from the other two handlers we're expecting between five and six thousand so when we opened the check and it was five hundred (laughs) dollars 
it's like it's such a joke it's such a joke and jen had said on there which i i thought was really savvy it likely was just so that they wouldn't be in breach of contract they had to oh, send absolutely. you something it's, oh it's, it's a total cya move absolutely what's cya cover your ass So, I mean, because let's say your buyers would have said to you in July, market's going to stay tanked. Would you have considered not harvesting or only harvesting what you need for tenderly rooted? Yeah. So that that was actually my proposal to my dad back in May was I said, I can keep the trees alive. I can keep them watered and I can keep the orchard mowed, but I cannot produce a commercial crop this year. And my parents live back and forth between the farm and Alaska now. So they, they were, it was four days before they're flying back up to Alaska. And he sat me down and said, no, you, you are going to produce a commercial crop this year. So then that's what it was moving into next year. We are going to be farming a much smaller block, farming just enough for tenderly rooted. I said to my dad, like, you got to find someone else to farm the rest of it. If you need it kept alive, I will keep it alive for you. Mm -hmm. But if you need Mm -hmm. it farmed, you got to find someone else to do it. Because um, not only am I yeah. losing money on the farming, I'm also taking money, I'm taking time away from developing our business that is paying the bills. Right. I feel yeah. like there's a generational divide too in so many farmers are are used to really, really hard times. I'm not sure about the walnut industry. I'm I'm just familiar with, with more of the livestock industry where things have been so low for so long. It's like, this is what we do though. This is who we are. You know, if we, if we look at this differently or if we don't go out and feed the cows that bale of hay, like what even are we, mm-hmm. if we just bring cattle on six months of the year, are we even ranchers anymore? And it, and it creates kind of an identity crisis. I really feel yeah. for, feel for your whole family trying to navigate this. Um, you're thinking the industry could be going down right now in some ways. I mean, are you optimistic for tenderly rooted? It could put you guys in a great position cynically. Like you're the only direct to consumer walnut grower I've ever heard of. I have to imagine you guys are on the forefront of this. People aren't going to stop wanting walnuts. What do you think is going to happen? My my mind goes to a few different places at first. So with tenderly rooted, yes, I'm optimistic. When I look at business assessment, right? When I'm creating a business plan, part of it, what you do is you look at market research, you look at potential market cap, right? You look at competition, all those kinds of things, right? The market cap for tenderly rooted is really limited by consumer awareness. The cap will continue to grow Mm -hmm. significantly as long as we continue to invest in the conversation with the customer, the back and forth with the customer, our market cap will continue to grow. And it's possible that it can grow significantly larger than we could ever manage ourselves. That would be the ideal, right? Mm -hmm. It could still remain a very niche industry and also have space for 20 or 30 companies 10 times our size. Mm -hmm. That's my preferred future. So from that lens, standing from where we are today to where the mature market could be, there's a lot of optimism. But when we look at what's happening more globally, more macroeconomically, it's the conversations we all have about like, how, how do we spend our money? How do we save the earth from ourselves in the future? Um, how do we get healthy nutrients? It's, it's a very complex conversation and there's not a lot of good answers. And I still enjoy, you know, Fritos and (laughs) everything else too. So, you know, so I, I think sometimes the answer is just a lot simpler than we want it to be. Um, but we still like recording podcasts 2000 miles away. And so, you know, it's just, there's some realities to that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. 
what does it mean to have our cake and eat it too? Um, sometimes I think we overthink it because the simple answer is just genuinely uncomfortable. I wanted to ask you also about water before we move on to talking a little bit more about tenderly rooted. So I talk a lot about water on this podcast. I'm very defensive about water um, based on the, you know, the, the accusations, a lot of the beef industry, these big water hogs. And so it's like, I'm an evangelist of, yeah, but it's mostly rain water. Like I just, <laughs> so I just want a t-shirt and I want that printed on my tombstone. And yeah. And one of the things I have said in the water industry is like, well, when you break it down by green water and blue water, AKA rain versus irrigation or aquifer water, you know, beef is look at nuts guys. We need to look at nuts. Like, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to shut me up, set me straight about water use and nuts. Again, I've been using them as a scapegoat to defend yeah. beef on this podcast. Yeah. Hey, feel feel free. Use nuts. That's okay. Um, that's, that's no problem. But I, I think I think a lot of the systems that you experience practically on the ground, we also experience here. For example, they, they say, I think walnuts need about one and a half acre feet of summer irrigation. So that's about 18 inches of rainfall. And we don't get that in California. So mm-hmm. that means we're taking it up out of the ground. Now, we got like 30 inches of rain this year that fell onto the soil. Um, so we had plenty of reservoir water in the soil, in, in, in the what I call surface water retained, um, which is different than an aquifer because an aquifer has to go through some kind of an impermeable layer and be captured there. Um, whereas surface water can be accessed directly from the surface, just going through topsoil or cobble or something else. By the way, the university education I got is in water resources engineering. Oh my gosh. I'm trying trying very consciously not (laughs) to get too nerdy on this. Nerd out. We love it. Um, But the hydrologic location that our farm is particularly situated on is in river bottom soil. So when my great-grandfather bought this, there were no levees built along the river. So we had seasonal flooding. And there are still some sloughs throughout our orchard that used to be the path of the river during different times of the year. When my great-grandfather first bought it, he was only able to plant nine acres of ground because that was the high ground. That was the dry Hmm. high ground, right? And then as more and more development happened, more and more grading and leveling happened, then in 1955, when the state came in and built the levee system, um, we were able to capture more and more of the deeded property in commercial farmland. But our hydrologic location is we're in a part of the river that's called a gaining river. So the groundwater is moving towards the river and being added to the water volume of the river as the entire California Valley is drained into the Bay Area, right? So groundwater is moving towards the river to be carried down to Sacramento, carried down to the Bay Area. Six years ago, seven years ago, the state came through and said, you know, too many nitrates and nitrites are getting into the river and it's affecting the fish populations. We need to prevent the migration of these farm chemicals into the water supply. So they trenched along the top of the levee, one meter wide by 80 feet deep, and they poured a clay layer from the top of the levee, (laughs) right? Your eyes are bulging, and I'm agreeing with you because this is absolutely absurd. They poured a (sighs) clay layer to seal off the water movement to go into the river. So now for like 40 miles of river, the only way that water is added to the river is through tributaries and rainfall and not through groundwater like it has been historically. Mm-hmm. What that has meant is that the grading of the ground for the last 10,000 years 
has pulled water from 30 miles off the river towards us through our land into the river. So we have actually seen our water table uh, become more shallow as huh. a result of this clay wall because all of that water is coming up. It's hitting that clay wall instead of moving into the river and is backing up across our soil and our land and then slowly following the path of the river south as it moves through soil. Now, most groundwater moves about one inch per month. It's a very slow water movement, which is why by the time water gets into aquifers, it's usually very purified because it's had a lot of time in the soil to clarify. So we end up, like right now our water table in the springtime before we start irrigating is like 12 feet. It's very shallow. By the end of the summer, our water table is about 25 feet. So we draw down a lot, Mm -hmm. but both of our ag wells are shallow. They're above the aquifer. So we're just using that groundwater. So that means a couple things. One, we're using water that's been in the ground for a long time. Two, we're reusing a lot of our same water over and over again because it can't Mm -hmm. escape into the river. So we put it on irrigation, it percolates back down the soil, we suck it back up, put it back on. And we do that, you know, and if you think about it moving, I misspoke earlier, I said an inch per month, typically in our soil profile, because you're looking at grain sizing and things, it moves about a foot per month. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but if you think about it, you take the whole satellite image of our farm and you just shift it over one foot, we're reusing a huge portion of our water. You're cycling your every water. Every single year, right? We're recycling so much of the water. So we're in a very unique hydrologic situation. And as other farms run out of water in the next 15 to 20 years, because we will, that's, that's not like we, we will, uh, we're going to be one of the last farms to run out of water. That's not something I, I want to be proud of, but <laughs> it's reality. The reason why I say we will run out of water in the next 20 years is because we've already started to last year. And we were saved by a lot of rain this year, mm-hmm. but that's not, that's not a long-term investment. <laughs> that's a temporary mm-hmm. Uh, solution. So one reason why I think the nuance is challenging for us is because we have a consumptive mindset. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we think that when we use something, uh. it's completely gone, destroyed, consumed, obliterated, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's how we treat most things. Yes. Right? Um, tragically, it's how we treat most of each other, most of the earth's resources. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to water, we think, oh, you used one and a half acre feet, that one and a half acre feet no longer exists. But it's actually much more like electricity. And maybe this is me being too nerdy, but like you don't use up electrons and electrical wires when you run electricity through it. Uh It's just simply passed along. It's carried along. It's more like a water wheel on a river than it is like burning a stick, right? You don't Uh consume it like you burn a fire. You simply use what's there and then return it. That's the cool thing about water. But we often don't include that non-consumptive mentality in conversations of water use even the term water use. Water use. Oh my gosh. That's a really helpful frame. And it's where the water comes from is a, it's a very important distinction. And it's something we think about, or I think about a lot in terms of just trying to manage like as if every year is a drought year. And one of the issues here in Montana in terms of water use, and I'm curious what your system is, we have kind of a use it or lose it um, mm. water right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm. so there is zero incentive um, for farmers to use less, it actually puts them at risk of losing their, using their right to have it at all. So do, yeah. do you guys, what kind of system do you have in terms of water rights? Yeah, very similar. So us specifically here on this farm, um, we have rights to the water underneath our farm. So oh, yeah. we have our own wells. We pull from that. Once you get about six miles off the river, it turns into very clay soil. And so we have 
huge amount of rice production. And all of that is done through the irrigation district. So that is all very much managed the same way, use it or lose it. And really that use it or lose it is from a higher level than the individual farmer. Now we, we inherit that mentality because it's been passed on from us, but if the irrigation district doesn't use it, they lose it. And then if the next system up doesn't use it, they lose it. So it's, it's a whole incentive structure to use whatever you can or else someone else is going to get it next. So this is playing out in California. Again, I'm not an expert. It's not impacting me directly, but with the Colorado River, Governor Newsom in California was basically holding the entire state of like Arizona and New Mexico hostage mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. we refuse to give up any of our water rights. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, but there physically isn't enough water coming down the river. Like mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. you, it doesn't matter if you have that much allocation, if there's not that much water, again, it doesn't magically appear just because it's written on paper that you get more. Like mm-hmm. it's physically mm-hmm. not there. We've got to compromise. So it starts from that level of things of like, well, if California doesn't use all of our water, then Arizona is going to take it from us, right? So we have to use it all. Well, no, 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 we don't actually. We could just do things differently. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm full of digressions, I suppose. but Please, please for, do. <laughs> for me, this, this comes down to the fundamental concept of owning water. Um, my yes, personal belief please. is that... So the hot take, controversial take disagree with me as much as you want, that's a-okay. Um, I think in 200 years, we're going to look back on land ownership the way we look back on slavery. The absurdity yeah. of owning a human life and the absurdity of owning the earth mm-hmm. are absolutely absurd to me. Owning water makes no sense. Right. It like physically, logically. Yeah. Like when we, you and I, we are people who live on the land, right? When we are physically out on the land, there is no sense by which I control what the water does. I am a participant in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I am not an owner of those resources. So th- this whole concept of like thinking that we can own the sky and own the soil and own the water and own this plot of land that stops right here, even though I can walk straight over to my neighbor's <laughs> land. There's nothing physically, like there's no, there's no actual barrier except for what we have imagined to be a barrier. And somehow we get very, very upset about it. And it's like, guys, it's just, it is what it is. It's just the earth. It's just, it's water. Anyway. Thank you for saying that about water. It's a, it's a wonderful point. And I'm really, I've been gently talking about this on some, at some of my retreats, we do cowgirl camp and shepherd camp. And one of the things that comes up a lot is people come out here, they fall so in love with the work. They get so excited about it. And they're like, I want to buy some land out here. Like that's the first thing that the people feel often. And I, I'll either joke with them, yeah, like same, yeah, you know, because <laughs> we're sort of, um, my like tagline is that we're ranchers without a ranch, you know, we don't own any land and it's fairly out of, out of reach. Um, but what I want to say deeper down, which maybe people aren't quite ready to hear in that moment is like, it's good to practice loving things without wanting to own them. And it's brought me a lot of peace to detach from the idea that I need to own land to take care of it, to invest in it, to care about it, to put time into it. You know, I, I, I see this sort of um, trap perpetuating itself among a lot of first generation ranchers who sacrifice so much to get into the land in the first place that then the land owns them. I don't know if I want in. The system yeah. seems bad. <laughs> so and, and it seems bad because, because it is bad. I think it's, it's interesting, you know, right. I... I feel the same way. We, we don't own this land. We don't own the house we live in. I'm not sure that I would want to, even if I could at this point. 
because I feel the same way that people in your shepherd camp feel of like when we're in these beautiful spaces, we're like, oh, I want to own a slice of this. Mm -hmm. But as I'm paying attention to myself, I think what I'm really saying is I want to find a place that I feel safe. And we're taught to believe that we have to own something to feel safe, to feel like ourselves, to feel like we can occupy it as our whole selves without any performative nature, without any, you know, external exploitation or expectation put on us. We need to own it. But really what we want is we want human safety. Fundamentally, we want shelter, food, water, and we think we need to own things for that. But then more existentially, we we just want it, we want a place to feel safe as the person we are. Mm-hmm. And I think especially when we're found in beautiful spaces, they sense that this is a space that I could feel safe in. Therefore, I need to own it. Instead of this is a space that I feel safe in and I can enjoy it. And unfortunately, a lot of times we can't enjoy it unless you're visiting my farm or visiting one of your camps because (laughs) this system that we exist in refuses to allow us to enjoy things without paying for them. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to begrudgingly tear myself away from a rant I want to go on and dive into Tenderly Rooted again before we wrap up. I would love to hear how do you sell your walnuts? How the flavors, there's so Mm -hmm. many, they're all incredible. Um, and how can people buy them? So we started sprouting walnuts because Jen is allergic to walnuts. It became a business because we're like, hey, let's see if other people like this too. Ironically, I don't like the taste of raw unsprouted walnuts. I grew up on a walnut farm. I'm just, ugh, I don't like the bitterness. They are a little sharp on my tongue. Just no thanks. Sprouted walnuts are like warm and buttery and smooth. They're delicious. And we found that people really like them. So we started selling them online. And then we started introducing these flavors. And, and our infusions we do, we don't do any like spray-ons. Like when, when we make an infusion, we like pull stuff out of our pantry that we cook for ourselves to make the test recipes. And then mm. of course we, we bulk it up. So we're using like jalapenos that we picked out of our garden and limes that we picked from a neighbor's tree for like the jalapeno lime flavor. Like that's how we make our, our infusions. So we have six permanent flavors, and then we also have what we call our flavor of the month, which is a rotating flavor where we get to do a little bit more experimentation for a smaller group of people who are excited to try new profiles and new things. And and then successful flavor of the months then become permanent flavors, which is fun. So that's how we got like the cinnamon roll flavor, which yes. is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you can find us online, tenderlyrooted.com or sproutedwalnut.com. Of course, we're on Instagram too, which we like hanging out there. Sprout Walnuts. They're great for snacking. And the great thing about the monthly delivery box is then you don't have to think about it and you always have healthy snacks in your pantry. And if you do get the munchies and you don't want to feel guilty about, you know, going for another bag of Lay's potato chips, go for a bag of sprout walnuts Mm -hmm. and your body will thank you and you'll feel better about it. And you'll feel satisfied. They are nutrient dense. Yes. (laughs) The hill I love to die on. If you, if you break up the water use of a walnut or, or beef or anything by nutrient density, by, you know, gram of protein, suddenly they're a way more environmentally friendly snack than all this other stuff. Exactly. Absolutely right. I love asking direct-to-consumer farmers this and and all farmers this. What can consumers do right now to move the needle for a better food system without waiting for the government or all these other forces that are probably not going to help? You ready for another hot take? Yeah. I honestly think the best thing that people can do is plant victory gardens which takes money out of my pocket and maybe out of your Mm -hmm. pocket. But like Mm -hmm. I genuinely, like if we genuinely want change and not just continuing to like the same cycles of brokenness, two more minutes of a rant. I apologize. I just cannot help myself. (laughs) (laughs) Do I have your permission? Yes. 
Okay. All right. So I, I believe that if, you know, we look at all these sci-fi time travel things, like if we could go back in time and observe the United States in like 1946 and 1947, I think we were at a huge inflection point that for the most part, we're completely unaware of at the end of the war. So my grandma was 14 years old at the end of the war. She's still alive today. 40% of the U.S. food supply was grown in victory gardens, people's backyard gardens that they grew themselves, which means my grandma grew up two things. One, she grew up 40% of her food came from the backyard, but that also means 60% of it came from the grocery store, right? So it's not like what we imagine, like Little House on the Prairie, where no one ever goes to a store, 100% of what you eat is from the ground beneath your feet. Like it's not that extreme, Mm -hmm. but it is substantive. Also at the end of the war, now we had all of these tank factories and munition factories that were shutting down because we weren't making tanks and munitions anymore. So we had an option. Do we invest economically in bolstering the resilience of our food supply by investing in local victory gardens. So that way there is no such thing as a centralized food supply. Everyone's always growing their own food and there's always local food available to everybody. Or do we invest economically in our food supply by converting tank factories to tractor factories, munition factories to fertilizer factories? Mm -hmm. We know what happened, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the charts of the amount of synthetic nutrients starting from the end of the war, it is just a exponential curve going up because we began converting all of these factories that we had the infrastructure for into agriculture uses instead of wartime uses. But what we lost was the victory garden. Now less than 1% of the America's food supply comes from backyard gardens. Mm -hmm. So to me, if we want to make a significant change today in the food supply in America, plant a victory garden. It's it's, it's so wise and if I can even take a bite of that and make it even smaller, grow one thing, you know, yeah, start with absolutely. one basil plant totally. in your window. They, it's such a microcosm of all the challenges and struggles and joys of, of growing food. I, I feel like even just having a few chickens and, and having chicken eggs for me unlocked gratitude for all the other food mm, that I was buying at absolutely. the store. Absolutely. I love that. Plant a victory garden. I think, yeah. I think it's, it's very empowering. It, and um, it also creates more appreciation for farmers. You go, damn. So we, we had that moment of appreciation when we r- raised our own pigs for our freezer. Now we know, now we eat way less bacon because we only oh, got man. 15 pounds of bacon from that whole pig. Now it's on an every Saturday yes. morning thing. Now yes. it's a special occasion thing. <laughs> and yes. we love the whole pig. We eat the whole pig. We eat all the different parts of it. And we have so much gratitude. We thank the pig by name when we have mm. meals that we use that pork from. Our kids remember it. It's very honoring. It's very integrative to our, our beings and our souls. So they can find you tenderlyrooted.com and at tenderlyrooted yep. on Instagram. Absolutely. We will include links to check out your walnuts in our show notes. Cabin, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and I hope that you'll be back. It has been an absolute joy anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today on Choose Wisely. I hope your next meal is delicious and your next conversation nuanced. Give us a rating and review. Please, please just take 10 seconds. It means the world. It really helps new people find us. And we're so grateful when you spread the word about the pod or share an episode that you really like. If you're really behind our mission and really loving what we're doing, you can find us on Patreon choose wisely podcast and follow us on instagram at choose wisely podcast 
And guess what our email is? It's the same, podcast at gmail.com. Feel free to drop us a line. You can recommend guests or give us some feedback. We really appreciate it. All right, see you next time.